We're going to focus today, this is the third of the installment on evangelism. Now I know the word evangelism sends a tremor through most of us whenever we hear it. It does me, and, and that's okay. I mean, we, we should have a little trepidation about it. That it's okay to feel that way. Uh, but this third installment on evangelism, we're going to focus on what is the gospel, the biblical gospel. Uh, the first two, we looked at the mandate, the biblical mandate of the gospel. Last week, we looked at uh, kind of the engine room of evangelism, where biblical evangelism happens. It happens at the epicenter of God's sovereignty, gospel integrity, and our service. Uh, and for us as believers, as, the wit as a witness for Christ, uh, we find our maximum energy, our maximum effectiveness in the epicenter of those three circles. So uh, we saw that and examined that last week. Uh, and tonight, um, today, we're going to focus on the, the second of those three circles, gospel integrity, and what that means. This may seem a little basic, but I don't think it is. I think it, uh, 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 in, in some respect, it's very familiar, but in another respect, uh, it's something that needs to be guarded with a lot of care and, and, and prayer. Uh, the gospel is what God uses to, to convert lost people. It's what he uses to remove the veil uh, of, of people who cannot see Christ. Uh, and it's what he uses in transforming lives. We saw that in the passage of scripture we reviewed last week. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6 says that. Uh, we proclaim Christ and God opens blind eyes. Well, Peter has a has a statement about that uh, that is in 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25. We're going to be flipping through a lot of verses today. I'm not really doing a, a sword drill, as Baptists would say, looking up Scripture, finding books of the Bible, but it might feel like that a little bit. Uh, but 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25, uh, Peter reinforces what we saw last week says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass, grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So Peter reinforces that idea. And that's very important to recognize in our evangelism efforts that my testimony could be very important for someone to be able to identify with someone who went from not a believer to a believer. And, it, and it's, our, our testimonies are even most effective when we incorporate various elements of the gospel uh, into them. Uh, but the gospel itself is what God uses uh, to bring salvation and to bring light and to, uh, to bring someone into a, a, living, a living faith. I've outlined the, the eight elements of the gospel. Uh, you have that as part of your handout. And uh, we'll go through these and, and exercise with them just a little bit. But in his really fine book, uh, Will Metzger, Tell the Truth, uh, two or three copies are on our book table out here. This was one of the more useful 
books on evangelism that I discovered in my journey, which began in earnest about 20 plus years ago. It's almost like a handbook on evangelism. It focuses on the theology of it and the doctrine of it, but also has some practical uh, great advice. And one of the things he points out in here is that our theology is to drive our methodology. Now, this is the third installment on evangelism training, and I have not gone into methodology at all. Some of you may be worried, uh, interested or intrigued why I haven't done that, and it's for that very reason. A good biblical doctrine will drive our methodology. And for me, I can remember 20 or 25 years ago hearing an evangelist uh, preach and uh, promote a method of, of evangelism and it was basically a method that worked for his personality and for his traits, his strengths and giftings, but I didn't have his gifting and I, I remember leaving very frustrated uh, because I, I really didn't feel comfortable with that methodology. Uh, but I, I find my frustration with evangelism relieved when I understand the principles then apply my skills, my gifting, uh, to those biblical principles. And so that's, that's, that's underlying uh, what I'm trying to, to do in terms of these training uh, components. I want to read a few, a few lines from, uh, from Will Metzger. And he, he takes us back and helps to explain some of the evangelism methods that really became prominent in the second half of the 20th century and, and are still with us today. He, he contrasts uh, Paul's method of evangelism uh, with what, was, what emerged in the 20th century. Probably wasn't the first time it emerged uh, uh, down through the centuries, but it certainly emerged in the, in the 20th century. Paul's method of evangelism, when he was on his missionary tours, you remember he would first show up at the synagogue and begin teaching them about Messiah and that Jesus is, was and is that Messiah. And he preached there until they got, had had enough and would run him off. And he would take those who had become believers and would go and teach them and, and collect more believers. And he would spend three months in the synagogue, like in Acts chapter 19, before they had had their fill of his preaching and forced him away. But then he stayed there in Ephesus for two years, and maybe as much as three years. And so his method wasn't a, a quick and easy and simplistic method. It was teaching and driving home the truths and the doctrines of the gospel. That was his method of evangelism. And so Will Metzger contrasts that. He says, in place of this scriptural stance, since about 1900, a new method of packaging the gospel has now come into evangelicalism worldwide. We are to make the gospel readily transferable so as to gain the mental assent of the hearer. This has led to the idea of the simple gospel, which we all supposedly know as soon as we become Christians. But this approach encourages us to think of the gospel as a pill that will cure all. We as doctors dispense it, and he goes on and on. Skipping down, he says, if we carry through with the logic of simplistic evangelism, we need not carefully and persuasively explain and illustrate the doctrines of the gospel. Have you ever noticed, going skipping down further, have you ever noticed that most conferences on evangelism 
concentrate on methods and not on the message uh, content. And so he basically goes on to say that this, that morphs into a me-centered gospel versus a God-centered gospel. And so that's kind of the, the framework for our discussion uh, here today as we go through it. If I have enough time, I will address some, uh, some of the popular gospel tracts that are used uh, today. I'm not a huge fan of gospel tracts, although there is one that is my favorite, and it's referred to as the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it's not a simplistic approach, and I especially like this version of it. It's the Christianity Explored version because it has about, thir about 13 pages in all designed to help a person understand what they're reading who's not familiar with the Bible. And it starts off with a you know, two pages of that. Uh, read this first. You have just opened a truly remarkable book. And then it gives a brief explanation. Midway through it, around chapter 8 or so in the Gospel of Mark, uh, there are two pages that kind of summarize the story so far. And then the second page says, what comes next? Uh, then the, the reader will read through it. And then at the end, there's five or six pages that pull it all together and help them have a, a clearer idea of what they've read. And so uh, this has become my fa favorite gospel track uh, giveaway. Uh, and if we get to that, if we have enough time to get to that, to my review of some of the gospel tracks, uh, you will think that I'm very negative on gospel tracks. I'm not. Uh, I just think that they need to be understood for what they can do and also understood for what they cannot accomplish. And so that's hugely, hugely important. And I think many um, have been taken out of that context and uh, the result is not, not, not very great. If I don't finish that today, we'll, we'll carry over that uh, next week. I had planned four lessons that I have five weeks to do. So I have plenty of time. We're not going to skip some of these things. So I have uh, uh, plenty of material uh, to go through. Okay, you have a, as a handout uh, this, uh, the, the, what I refer to as a whole gospel or the, the elements of the gospel. I've broken these down into eight elements. Uh, Will Metzger, in his book, uh, Telling the Truth, inspired me to, to think about it in that way. He doesn't break them down into eight elements, but he does break them down into components. And I, um, in my examination of Scripture, trying to put this into something that I could get my head around and that would be also, that would be useful as I evaluated either a gospel track or if I used it to evaluate uh, the Christianity Explored evangelism material. Uh, do they, does the material contain all of these elements, uh, which are, I, I view as, as absolutely essential. Now I can, I'll acknowledge also that my eight elements could have been broken down into 16 or 20. I mean, there's, you know, you have to, have to stop somewhere, but, uh, and there's a lot of detail behind it, but this helps me to get the, I guess, the, the, the central components that are really, really essential. Uh, I also use a three-point uh, three outline that, Christianity, that emerged out of the Christianity Explored Ministries, Identity, Mission, and Call. That's a, yeah, I use that for my elevator speech. Uh, if I have 60 seconds to invite a coworker to this class, 
I can tell them using identity, mission, and call what the Christian Explore course is all about. So I'm not opposed to summarization, but uh, uh, they all have their place, but they have their strengths and, and their limitations. So what I want to do right now is go through, um, go through the basic eight elements that I've identified uh, and just hit some highlights, read some scripture that identify these. And, uh, and then we'll take a few minutes and take those eight elements and which attribute of God do these emerge from? Not, except the first one. The first one, God, emerges from all of his attributes. Uh, and I don't know if there's any complete list. Surprisingly, Wikipedia has a pretty good list. They list 20 attributes. Uh, and, but anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll think about which of the attributes of God do each of these components come from. Because basically the gospel message represents God. It's, uh, it's teaching about God. So, without further ado, I'll mainly pull from uh, the New Testament column that I have. I've gone through and I've circled on my little messy looking uh, page here. Uh, I'm not going to read all of those for each of these eight, but I want to just go through them to get our get our heads connected on. The first one I'm going to use is from Colossians 1, 15 and 20. Uh, Colossians 1, 15, and and 15 through 20. Go eat popcorn. Uh, if you're have trouble remembering what order they all come in. Um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go eat popcorn. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of the cross. So this captures who God is, and it captures that Jesus is God, and he is, he is equal uh, to God. Let's flip back to Acts 17, verses 22 to 34. I won't read all of that, but I'll hit a few highlights in that. Acts 17, 22 to 34. It has a hugely important, uh, several elements are hugely important. Um, Paul is preaching the gospel, or he's at the Areopagus. Uh, it says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, that God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Skip down to 
Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So we know that uh, God has uh, appointed his son Christ, who is God. He's God the Son, and uh, he will judge uh, everyone uh, in the world. Uh, and God has already set a date for that. Let's move to God's standard for every human being. Uh, Matthew 5.48 is a great succinct statement of that. Matthew 5.48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, Mark 12, 39 to 30. Uh, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, I think all of the synoptics uh, recount that one for us. So, and we know that none of us have been able to live that way. We've not been able to live perfectly as God is perfect. We haven't loved him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, and we've all failed, and that brings us to the next point, which is sin. I'll read first from Romans 1. You know, in a Bible study that I have, that I, I and another individual lead on Wednesday mornings, there's three uh, individuals that don't know the Lord, but they keep coming to our study. We've been doing this for several years, uh, and we keep teaching them the elements of the gospel. Uh, we do different books. Uh, but one of them made a statement uh, two weeks ago, a week and a half ago. He said, the God of the Old Testament is scary. Or he said, the Old Testament is scary. I said, well, Thurston, the New Testament is scary too. <laughs> it has just as much scariness as the Old Testament does. Um, and Romans 1 through uh, the first three chapters are a good example. Uh, when I was spending a lot of time in Isaiah a few years ago, I cataloged the number of times that Isaiah names a sin in the preface to his book, which is the first five chapters. It's more than five dozen times. There's a little bit of repetition in the, in the listing. Well, Paul doesn't take a back seat to Isaiah at all. Do you know how many times my first count of the number of times Paul names a sin in the first three chapters. It's at least 70 times. Now, I've got to go back and refine that a little bit, but there's a little redundancy in that. So the Old Testament and the New Testament have an amazing uh, consistency uh, among themselves, between themselves. All right, Romans 1, uh, beginning in verse uh, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Uh, Romans has quite a few passages uh, about sin. It names them, 
and also teaches us you know, doctrines of sin, that we are all, by our own human nature, uh, very sinful creatures. All right, let's move to look at wrath, although that passage did include wrath. Let's look at Matthew 13, 36 to 43. Actually, you don't even have to turn to this one, but think about John 3:16, maybe the most famous passage in the Bible, although I think R.C. Sproul made a comment that a judge not lest you be judged is rapidly uh, climbing in popularity, especially to those who are teaching the gospel to non-believers. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not, what, perish, but have eternal life. Even in that most popular verse, we see uh, the consequences of rejection of him there. All right, so let's look at Matthew 13. Matthew 13, uh, 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the ones of sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I was interested to know how many times or how often the New Testament refers to something having to do with judgment or wrath uh, that, that, is, that is coming. And it's an amazing number of times. I selected about a dozen and a half words to do a word search. I didn't have the time to go through reading it very diligently Uh, and cataloging it that way. So I took a shortcut, and I know I've overlooked in my count certain passages that uh, address this issue of judgment and wrath. But the words that I selected showed up 350 times in the New Testament, and that was across 300 unique verses, separate verses. Some verses had had those words uh, more than once. Um, And if... If you look at your New Testament, I have about, I don't know, six or eight Bibles at home. And so I went and see how many pages were in the average New Testament. And uh, if I remember correctly, it's about 260 pages for a typical New Testament. Uh, My smaller Bible has more pages. But that means that something about judgment and wrath is on just about every page in the New Testament. Uh, But so often we read through it, we kind of skip those over and, and gloss those over. Uh, but it's very, it's very dominant. I want to read a, another passage on, on that topic, this topic, from Revelation 6, chapter 12. Uh, Revelation 6, 12 through 17. <clears throat> Revelation 6, 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth 
as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Notice that phrase, the wrath of the Lamb. Rather ironic. We don't expect those two words to be in the same phrase or same sentence, but the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, And I think judgment and wrath is one of the elements of the gospel that has been pushed to the side because it's not very uh, uplifting. It's not very pleasant necessarily, but... The Bible does not push it to the side. The Bible doesn't uh, minimize it in any way. All right, let's look at the cross. Just a few passages. Romans, uh, Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 21 to 26, give us a summary of the cross, a lot about it, the accomplishments of the cross. It's one of my favorite passages um, that speak of the accomplishments of salvation. Romans 3:21 to 26 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So we have a good synopsis of the gospel there. Um, And let's see, 424 to 25, just flip the page in Romans, 424 to 25. Again, but for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him who was who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So again, there's a lot of there's a lot of passages that speak to the same to the same issue. All right, grace. Grace gets a lot of airtime uh, across Christendom, across the visible church. Uh, it's a good uh, a good topic um, and an important one, to be sure. I, and I'll go to one of the better known in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Even though it's so familiar to all of us, it remains rich for every one of us. And then I'll flip to Titus. But Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now back to Titus. Go toward uh, Revelation. Come back a little bit along with the T's. And, and this, this, may, this, is, this is also one of my favorite uh, passages about uh, with a very succinct uh, Summary, some very important 
Titus 3, 4 through, I'm going to read 4 through 7. Titus 3, 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Another great passage on grace. And then winding down to repent and believe, Luke 13 is one of my favorites there. I told you you we're going to exercise finding books in the Bible, flipping there. Luke 13. One through five. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And there are, there are many others that we could refer to. Now, counting the cost, you're in Luke, so just flip to chapter 14. It's another example of Jesus calling us to walk in the way of the cross. Uh, it's another example of that image as a great metaphor for what it is to, to live the Christian life. Luke 14, 25 to 33. <clears throat> now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began, began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Um, that's a very powerful explanation of what it is to follow him and uh, encouragements to consider the difficulties in following him. Uh, another great and lengthy passage on this same topic would be in Mark chapter 13. Practically the entire chapter is devoted uh, to that issue, uh, or that's one of the major issues in that chapter. It has about three major issues there. So this addresses the facts of the gospel. You know, th this kind of is an outline of uh, the scope in the content of the gospel message. But something else is equally important, and that is the biblical posture of the gospel. And that really often gets 
gets missed or somewhat distorted. And by posture of the gospel, I'm referring to its emphases, its priorities, uh, its applications, and its bearing. It's so easy to give lip service to the hard elements of the gospel and give uh, an, an overemphasis on, on grace. And so, I mean, that's, it's much easier to talk about uh, the, uh, some things rather than others. And so the bearing of the gospel, the posture of the gospel, is also uh, critical and a way that in which we can, uh, we can distort uh, uh, the biblical message uh, for sure. So I'll take any question if, that you might have, but I want to go through uh, kind of a, an exercise here and think about how do these different elements of the gospel emerge out of the attributes, uh, out of the attributes of God. And of course, the first one is just all of his all of, all of his attributes are there. But what about God's standard? Which which of God's attributes do you think most um, speaks to his standard for for his creation? Holiness, absolutely. And by the way, I will give to Sarah these handouts with my answers filled in at least, and that'll be reposted on on the website. What what other attributes of God does the standard of perfection emerge from? Justice. Justice? Well, Somewhat. <laughs> J.D. keeps messing up my boxes up here, but he's, ne- he's rarely wrong, though. So. Justice? Yeah. What else? What do you think about God's attributes? Yes, righteousness. Perfection. God is perfection for sure. I'm out of room, so. All right. Now this one, uh, it, it kind of merges out of the opposite. <laughs> so is that God, there's no sin with God, and so uh, I'll just I'll give you my thoughts about that. It, it emerges out of the doctrine of sin, and basically, sin is treason against God's kingship, against His sovereignty, and so. Uh, I, I, I think you'd be forced to try to say that emerges out of any attribute, but it's an attribute of fallen humanity. So we'll, we'll kind of skip over that one. What about judgment and wrath? J.D.? Justice. Justice. What else? Some are directly related like that. Some may be implied. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's kind of a result of it a little bit. That's kind of an indirect. And I would also say it's, it's the result of his righteousness because the righteous response to sin is wrath.
At least that's how that's how it struck me when I when I went through this. It kind of it's a response. And John Stott, if you don't have his book, The Cross of Christ, has a great discussion about the problem of forgiveness from God's perspective. From our perspective, if someone offends us, we kind of have an obligation to forgive them if they ask for forgiveness. But from God's perspective, how did he preserve his, the integrity of his being, being righteous, perfect, but at the same time being loving and merciful? And so the cross was really the, the solution for that. And the cross is really, where well, we're coming to that, the cross is really kind of the collision of all of those attributes. So the cross, what are, how do, how do we see, yep. What attributes does the cross represent and the resurrection? Say again. Humility. Humility. Yes. I didn't think of that one. That's good. Humility. He has the power. Yes. Another, I didn't hear. Somebody else said something. Yeah, justice is satisfied. And some of the obvious ones, love, mercy, forgiveness, his ability uh, to do that. So there's a lot that we could could, uh, locate there. What about grace? Love, mercy, goodness. <laughs> okay. Um, what about repent and believe? Repent and believe. Patience. Patience. Okay. Yeah, he gives me the opportunity. Yeah, yeah I think so. It's, it's a call to turn from sinful to holy. Yep, forgiveness is, I think, is here. I'm abbreviating. Anything else? I think we see his sovereignty being played out there. The one repenting is acknowledging God's sovereignty. His sovereignty demands it, uh, repenting. Or what about count the cost? This was maybe a little harder one for me. What attribute does that emerge out of? Say again. Holiness. Yeah. I can see a link to holiness. There was one thing that emerged out of last week's lesson in 2 Corinthians 2 when Paul said uh, he has this ministry based on what? You remember? Well, that's in there too. I'm looking for... Yeah, let's put that... I'm going to put service. But he said... He had this ministry based on the what of God. 
The mercy of God? I think this, I think this comes out of God's mercy. Because there's a cost of following Christ generally because we're telling the gospel message. Chris? Yep. Yep. Love. Uh, love and devotion. But we have this, when we're carrying the gospel to a lost person, we're extending God's mercy. God is extending his mercy through us. And so I think the cost of following Christ is, is found that you know, mercy is certainly central in that. Anything else? Yes. It takes humility to do that, no doubt. There's another one there too I think is really critically important that enables humility. It's, it's an attribute of God. Meekness, yeah, those are there too. And I think power kind of goes to it, sovereignty of God. See, I, I, can, I can risk my reputation or suffering because of God's sovereignty. He's going to make it right. I might lose my life, don't want to do that, don't want to suffer, but I can put myself at risk because God is sovereign. And at the end of the day, at the end of history, uh, it, it will all be made right. So I think God's sovereignty is an important attribute that plays, that plays into that as well. And so I think these are the essential elements that every good gospel presentation should, uh, should have. So any questions or comments? My magnets are running all over the place. Okay. Yeah, that's a great point, Matt. Matt's basically saying that we can use these as starting points for conversation. I also uh, use them. I try to, you know, when I'm, when I'm having a gospel conversation with someone that I know, I typically, oh, I'm over time. I typically know where their weak point is. Often it's at repentance. They don't want to repent. They might like the story, but they don't want to repent. I'll try to pick up here next week. I'm over about five minutes here. So any burning question uh, before we close in prayer? Okay, good. Thanks. Good discussion today. Our Father, we thank you for this privilege you've given us to share the good news with those who don't know you. I pray that 
for us as a church family, that you will give us open doors for the gospel. Give us opportunities to engage people with your great message of salvation and to draw people into, uh, into our fellowship uh, through conversion and through other ways. Lord, we just, we just acknowledge before you that we don't have the ability to do all of that, but we know that you do. Uh, you are sovereign, and we cling to your sovereignty. We place our trust in you, and we ask for your help uh, you're enabling us to grow and mature uh, in our witness for you. And we just pray that you would just give us a deep, deep love for Jesus that, uh, that expresses itself in uh, engagement with others. Lord, again, we thank you for this time we've had today. In Jesus' name, amen.